Hi, I'm Sophia Amoruso, founder and CEO of Girlboss. And this is Girlboss Radio, the show for and about ambitious women, exploring the wins, losses, and insights learned on the winding road to success. On today's show, I'm chatting with comedian, actress, writer, and producer, Amanda Seals. Amanda has an uncanny knack for taking serious topics and injecting them with a dose of humor that makes them relatable and interesting. In addition to performing stand-up across the globe and touring colleges, doing comedic lectures, Amanda has also become a series regular as Tiffany on HBO's Insecure. She's guest starred on Blackish and released her debut stand-up special, I Be Knowin' on HBO earlier this year. I'm excited for you to hear our conversation up ahead. Here's a little bit of what Amanda shared during our chat. I don't know who I think I am. I don't know who I thought everybody else was. But here at 38, I can safely say that I have had the epiphany that when I give other people the advice, like people, especially black women, will ask me like, you know, I just feel like I'm being misunderstood in my job. Like, you know, I feel like I'm, you know, just not getting to be myself. And I'll tell them like, yeah, but it's your job. Like, they don't need all of you. Your friends get all of you, your family gets all of you, like at your job, like give them as much of you as you want to give them that you feel makes you feel comfortable. If it's still so uncomfortable, then that's not the job for you. Stay tuned for my chat with Amanda. Here's our conversation. Amanda. Hi. Thank you for joining me on Girl Boss Radio. Thanks for having me. Welcome to our Silver Lake offices. Yes, pink floors to match my book. Uh-huh. And you're beautiful, <laughs> you guys. I mean, if you could dress for a podcast, she's dressed for a pod. She's dressed for every every cha- every media uh, channel, but over dr- overdressed for a podcast. <laughs> I'll take it. Okay. So, I want to know what your first job was. Not like first job out of college or like first, you know, salary job, but like first job. Mine was at Subway. My first job was a dancer in the Sparkling Christmas Spectacular at Disney World, where I was eight years old. We did three shows a week. We did three shows a day for three weeks, including Christmas. And prior to that, we rehearsed every Monday through Friday for three weeks. And uh, yeah, it was a job job. Like I hope they paid you. We were paid. Um, I don't know if we were paid handsomely, but we were paid and we would perform in front of Cinderella's Castle at Disney. And that was my first job. And then we came back during Easter and did the Easter parade. That was 1989. But anything specific that you you took from that experience and applied to what you're doing today? Well, interestingly enough, that was also the first time I ever experienced racism. So there were uh, 10 kids cast and five girls, five boys. And I was told immediately by the other kids, like, you only got picked because you're black. You can't dance. You're not a good dancer. You only got picked because you're black because they needed to fill other, they needed somebody black and they wanted you. That's the only reason why. And I think that that really did shape like the that was like the beginnings of me becoming somebody who is like incredibly rooted in creating art that speaks to an authentic black experience and specifically speaks for black women. So you have a master's degree in African American studies from Columbia. Mhm. 
Why was getting to a master's degree important for you? Like, have you used it in your career? Oh, 1000%. First of all, I'll say this, like not all African-American studies programs or any program really is are created equal. Like a lot of different programs, schools of study are based on, you know, different ideologies and different academic ideologies. So like, for instance, like uh, some programs would be more historically based, you know, some might be more literature based. For our program at Columbia in the Institute for Research in African-American Studies, it was created and headed up by the late Manny Marable, and he was very serious about social justice. So his whole uh, ideology was like, we need to study the past in order to like apply it to the present to make a better future. And that's like a very specific way of looking at the black experience. And for someone like me, like walking in the first day of class and him strolling in like, with a Frederick Douglass haircut and like putting his books down. He was like, do you want hip hop to die? And we were all like, okay, so we're in the right place. (laughs) In the right place. Um, Like that, that has been like a very strong, like uh, cornerstone in my just art as activism and like where I create from, but also just, it provided me with a plethora of information. Right. So like, that's how you end up with Harriet Tubman jokes in my special. Um, I be knowing, you know, and that's how you end up with a lot of social commentary that tries to pull in historical reference and literary reference, et cetera. Uh, but the other reason why I went and got a master's was because as a black woman in the entertainment space and as somebody who like kind of ends up speaking um, in intellectual spaces as well, like whether it be on panels, et cetera, like I just felt like I needed this extra piece of paper so that it was one less way for people to undermine my point of view. Do you recommend that for everyone in enter- I mean, do you think that's that higher education is important before getting into entertainment? No. Not by any means. Okay, so you st- you have a master's in African American studies from Columbia and then you got into comedy. <laughs> how did we get how well, do we Obviously, you've applied all of your learnings to what it is that you're doing today. So it's not like a huge departure, but on a day-to-day basis, what, you know, I think a lot of people wouldn't have predicted, okay, I'm, I'm going to do this and then go into comedy. How did that happen? Well, I really, I didn't, I didn't actually do that and then go into comedy. I actually, uh, I was always, I was always in the entertainment space. Like academia just kind of always was coupled there. Like when I was at undergrad, I was at SUNY Purchase. And SUNY Purchase is an arts, a liberal arts and conservatory school. So like everybody there was in school for the arts for what it's worth. And I was originally there as an acting major in the conservatory. And I left the conservatory and then created my own major. They didn't have a black studies major. So I made one up and was able to like create my own curriculum, which was black studies with a concentration in the visual and performing arts. So the two were always um, synergistic for me. There was always this train of thought that was going towards like really um, intense focused study of the black experience, black culture and black history at the same time that there was this intense focus study on creativity, whether it's visual art, you know, theatrical. Um, I was doing spoken word at the time, music, etc. So all of those things were converging from that time. And I ended up like doing deaf poetry jam while I was in school my first job out of school was a was a radio host at Sirius Satellite Radio, um, and I was still getting my master's degree when I booked MTV and was a VJ. 
I was never not going to be a performer. Like that kind of just, that story was already written. But the fact that I had this other side going at the same time is what has given like foundation to my work, what has given a certain level of gravitas to my work and what has rooted me in an industry that you can where you can very easily be toppled by so many vain and pointless <laughs> winds of change. So, yeah, I mean, I think that over time I was in the music space for like 10 years under the name Amanda Diva. <laughs> and then... I turned 30 and that seemed foolish. And there's an essay in my book, Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use, now available in stores. Uh, there's an essay called Death of the Diva where I talk about like when I decided to change my name. And that was the beginning of my eventually ending up in comedy because I realized that I didn't... I will always love hip-hop. I'm a hip-hop head to the day that I die. But the way that it was changing, the way that the, the industry was changing and the music, it was no longer like serving as a vessel for me to speak through. And Nick Cannon, I remember, had come on a show that I was doing at AOL that I had sold to AOL and Black Voices. And he was like, why aren't you doing TV? Like, why aren't you back at TV? I love how he said it as if it was like, well, as if it was like this easy, accessible thing. Like, oh, like, why didn't you get the pretzel goldfish versus the gold, the, the regular? And I'm just like, it's not that easy. But he planted a seed in my head. And I talk about in the book just my realizing that I needed to find what the connector was to my many hyphenates. I knew I could sing. I knew I could write. I know I'm funny. I know I can host. You know, I'm an actress. But it was like I was doing all these things and people were saying things to me like, it's like you do a lot of everything but nothing at all. I ended up looking at the careers of individuals that I wanted to have a career like. So like Chelsea Handler Ellen DeGeneres, Chris Rock, where they had created these like multimedia moguldoms based on their unique points of view. And it wasn't based on them being an actor. It was based specifically on their unique points of view. And I was like, that's what I want. Um, and I looked at what pieces of that puzzle they had. And when it came to it, when it came down to it, it was like, okay, well, they all can write. I can write. They all can host. I can host. They all act. I can act. They all do stand up. Oh. I don't do that. I don't do stand up. And I when I did, when I really examined it, it just felt like stand up was the thing that turned them from just being like funny people to legit comedians. And in order for me to truly have value in that space, I felt like I couldn't just be humorous. I'm not Roy Rogers. I can't just be like a humorist. Like that wasn't enough. Like I needed to have something that was more um that had more mass, you know, that was more weighty. And that meant that I needed to do stand-up and I needed to be really freaking good at it. And it's like one of those things that I knew that I had in me, but I didn't know that it was so... I, I just didn't know that it was this dormant thing that it was like, once you just lock in, like, it's for you. It's so hard. I mean, just orating of any... Just getting on a stage <laughs> and saying anything for me is like terrifying and I li I've listened to your podcast and you just start talking we don't edit either I mean, it's I not insane it's, it's amazing and I want to get into ah, the side effects of being difficult I yes. don't want to like rehash your podcast but I think I thought that was really well I think it's great for this for your podcast like the idea of a girl boss I feel like for a lot of people just triggers this notion of difficult women abrasive yes I'm yeah I've been called abrasive annoying you? that was the main word in my childhood was you've been called abrasive 
Um, I've been called a bully. Really? I can be like such a dick. Give me an example. Only to people that I'm close to. I actually yelled at my boyfriend last night. Did he deserve it? I don't know. I don't know. He claims that I misunderstood him. I don't think I did. And I screamed, shut up and go to bed. <laughs> Which is like, that's... That's tough. Yeah. Did you apologize? I did. But yeah. like, okay. shut up. I mean, let's... let's shut up is a lot. Like a teenager? Like, Wow. Wow. But sometimes people really bring you down to their level and you're just like, I'm responding to you as a teenager because you're acting like a teenager. You provoked me, but that's also not an excuse for anything. It's not an excuse, but it is an explanation. It is. It is. <laughs> I've been traveling a lot for Girlboss lately and let me tell you, one of my favorite productivity hacks is getting work done on the airplane. But in order to do that, I need to stay connected and you need to stay connected so I can email you. <laughs> so you can listen to Girl Boss Radio. We all need to stay connected because business is changing. And thankfully, T-Mobile for Business understands that. And that's why they help keep your business connected, whether you're in a coffee shop or on a plane. To learn more about how T-Mobile for Business can power your connectivity, go to T-Mobile.com business. That's T-Mobile.com business. Do you feel like there was a break, like a moment for you that was like, okay, I've made it. There's just been this compounding effect of, you know, maybe being in the right place. Oh, I just being went through that. Hypereducated, choosing exactly here's the recipe I think I need to have the career that I want. But, you know, was there a moment where there was a crescendo of those things where you're like, oh shit, I think I'm onto something? Yes, I would say in 2018, just seeing Smart, Funny, and Black, which is my uh, live variety game show, like seeing it sell out every single month at the Roxy in L.A. with no effort. Like it wasn't because we had celebrities on the show or because we were giving away free tickets. It was literally just like I would put it up on my Instagram and we would just sell out. And every show I was writing the show, performing, having a blast, and every show was elevating and getting better and better and better. And people started to really just acknowledge like, oh, this is happening because of you. Like, this isn't happening because you're in the right place at the right time. This isn't happening because of a team around you that is, you know, tweaking things behind the scenes. Like, this is because of Amanda's artistic genius. And so for for that to be recognized was really like a oh shit like this I, I'm not having to do as much um, legwork in terms of convincing mm-hmm. anymore and it's, I think that was the biggest difference. You're pulling rather than pushing. Mm-hmm. You don't need to market yourself. That you're just attracting people by the quality of work that you're doing, yes. which is the best marketing ever. Mm-hmm. Then you get word of mouth, and that's free. <laughs> and word of mouth to me is like yeah. that's my one. That's my number one marketing tool. How did you even begin to get into comedy? How have you honed your, how did you hone your craft? So if I'm being frank, I, I took a class at Upright Citizens Brigade, but Upright Citizens Brigade is not necessarily uh, known for its diversity. So I am somebody who is like, my black experience is so intrinsically a part of my writing and a part of my performance that I just felt like I wasn't connecting with the teaching style there. So I kind of just put it out into the open. Like I just like put it out into the universe. Like I need to do stand up. Now I will also say that I had in 2012 had an epiphany 
after like getting a lot of turn away from agents and just being told like if you're not willing to do reality TV, like no one's really interested in you, like you don't have anything to offer. Um, I had this idea where I was like, I need to create something that demonstrates to people what I want them to know about me. As a creative, like that's something very like useful, you know, just like what do you want people to know and now create something and whether it's like to know about you or to know about saving turtles, like what do you want people to know and then let that be your thesis. And at the time, like people in New York, I felt like only knew me as like a host. They knew that I could read prompter and I knew that I had so many more goals and so many more aspirations with my art that I wanted. And I was like, okay, you need to create something that demonstrates your artistic voice and the the immensity of your artistic vision. So I did a one-woman show called Death of the Diva. And it ended up being very successful in terms of achieving that goal. Like, we did six shows at the Helen Mills Theater. We sold out five of them. But most importantly, it was like people that I'd been acquaintance with or people that I had worked with, like, they got to see, like, oh, you got, like, real chutzpah and talent. Like, you got stuff going on, kid. And so after that, I decided I want to start doing a one-woman show a year. I did this for four years. So then the next year, I did a show called, I created a show called It's Complicated, Hilarical Answers to Serious Questions on Love. And so it was a one-woman, like, interactive comedy show about relationships. And I was trying to figure out where I can do this because theater, for a lot of people, feels, like, inaccessible. So I was like, maybe I should do it, like, in a comedy club. I feel like a lot of people feel like oh, theater is like yeah, for rich people or a lot of people feel like theater is for white people. And it's just like, but I want like, I want people to feel like they have access to this. And I got like a DM, I got like a, I said on Twitter one day, I said, I have anxiety today. And this person resp- replied and said, oh, you should come at, to our comedy club and like, get some laughs release anxiety in front of a bunch of people no they were saying just come as a guest okay okay and I was like it's so funny that you're contacting me because I had thought about contacting you all about doing my show about doing this show I have an idea about at your club and it ended up just turning into like that's where I ended up doing my show at their club and my one woman show doing it at a at a comedy club kind of started wet my palate of like you could stand on stage and tell jokes like, your show is a funny show, so... And then uh, Keenan Thompson, who is now one of my very good friends, had gotten in some hot water. He was quoted as saying, but now that I am where I am in in, in uh, this fame thing, just because they said you say it doesn't mean you said it. I heard about that. So let me just say, this is what they said he said, but I don't necessarily know anymore if this is what he had actually said. Mm-hmm. But supposedly he had said uh, that black women... They just hadn't had a black woman who was good enough to be on SNL yet. It set off a number of people saying, like, we need to do black woman showcases um, because we need to get a black woman on SNL. And so this woman hit me up and was like, hey, like, we're doing a black woman's comedy showcase. You know, we'd love to have you. I was like, I was like, is this it's stand up? And she was like, yeah. So we'd love to have you. She thought I already did stand up because I do at the time I did Best Week Ever on VH1. And there were a bunch of stand ups on the show. So she just put that together, like, by association. If you're on here with John Mulaney and Nick Kroll and Mike Britt, you must also be a stand-up. And I didn't tell her I wasn't. So I said, yeah, I'll I'll come. 
I'll come and do it. And the comedy is, by the way, Sashir Zameda, who actually ended up being booked for she SNL. She was just on the podcast a few weeks ago. Hey, Sashir! <laughs> she was on the show with me. She was on my first stand-up show. And uh, so I ended up performing and doing very well. Thank goodness. If I had bombed, I don't think I would Did have you continued. practice? There's no way to practice stand-up. So you just stood up there and did like a Mrs. Maisel thing? Yeah, I mean, there's no way to do, there's no way to practice stand-up at the end of the day. For me, for my type of stand-up, there's no way to practice stand-up. Like, I basically, like, I had a boyfriend at the time, like, previous, like, we broke up shortly before that. But he and I were watching a special, somebody else's special. And he paused it and was like, you're funnier than him. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? He was like, and you broke up with him? <laughs> he, listen, <laughs> everyone has bright spots All in right, dark corners, okay? okay. okay? Um, he was like, you're funnier than him. And I was like, why do you say... He was like, you're funnier than him. I'm trying to tell you you're funnier than him. And I was like, okay. So he was like, tell me a joke. And I was like, I don't have a joke. He's like, I'm going to I'm gonna go to the bathroom. And I'm going to come back. You have five minutes to write a joke and tell, tell me the joke. And l- l- little did he know, like, I did have stuff that I had been, you know, just acknowledging was funny. And so when he came back, I performed the joke for him in the living room. And he was like, like I said... You're funnier than him. I still do the joke to this day, by the way. And you want to know the joke? I, I made a face. Yeah, I want to know the joke. It's a joke about when I when my gynecologist uh, told me that I have a deep vagina. Wow. <laughs> it can't be bad. Ex- and therein lies the options. joke. Yes, there's yeah. the joke. Okay. What do you do with a deep vagina? And so that is how the joke extends. I'm not even going to say it full out because it might end up in my next special. But... From there, I had so I already had this like seed of like a little bit of confidence, and so I had prepared like a whole set from that. And then on my way to the um, first show, I had to take two trains. I had to take the A train down to Fourteenth Street, and take the L across town to Williamsburg. When I got to the L train at Fourteenth Street, someone had jumped on the tracks. Right. So what's sad is that, like, as a New Yorker, the bummer is not that someone lost their life. The bummer is like, ugh. I can't get where I'm going. Exactly. <laughs> yes. And so. No comment. I, <laughs> I came out the train. I'm just like, maybe this is a sign. Maybe this is the universe. And I'm very big into omens and signs. And I was like, maybe this is the universe saying that, like, this ain't the route. Because this is. This is a doozy. But Twitter. Well, and, and, and listen, and I'm standing there, and I'm standing there, and this girl who comes up to me, she, she's straight out of the cast of girls. Straight out of the cast of girls. She's like, are you going to Williamsburg? And I was like, I mean, that's the plan. And she was like, do you want to share a cab? And I was like, yeah. So we get in the cab, and this was November 6th, 2013. And Halloween had just passed, and we started talking about Halloween costumes, and I started talking about blackface because that was a year that a lot of people had been doing blackface costumes and she had never heard of blackface and then it was like a lot of people were like doing like these like very tasteless nasty terrible like Trayvon Martin costumes like it was just a very crazy time and so I I, she didn't know what blackface was and I was explaining it to her and she was like that is fucking ridiculous she was just like appalled at the concept of blackface and when I got to the venue I realized like that cab ride is your set. Like, you don't even need to do what you had planned. Like, that cab ride, what took place, the conversations, everything. And so I just jotted some stuff down on a napkin, and I went on stage, and I did a whole set about blackface. 
Your bio says you have an uncanny knack for taking serious topics, racism, rape culture, sexism, police brutality, etc., and with humor, making them relatable and interesting. She combines intellectual wit, silliness, and a pop culture obsession to create her unique style of smart, funny content for the stage and screens. How do you combine these things, right? Like, how have you found, is there, like, a balance between talking about tough topics, making them funny, disarming people, challenging people, not being difficult, challenging people. Like what is, is there, is there a recipe that has been successful for you? How do you approach tough topics with a sense of levity? I mean, I think it's just being funny, which I know may sound like really basic, but it's like, you just got to be funny, man. Like if you can find a way to just genuinely, authentically just be funny. And for a time, I felt like I was trying to convince audiences that I was funny. And it wasn't until like I decidedly would go on stage like, I'm funny, so y'all can get into it or not, that my my comedy like turned a corner. I'm in a new phase of growth right now with my stand-up because I feel like up until this point, I haven't really like been very personal with my stand-up. Like I may have talked about stories or, you know, some experiences, but I haven't really cut into myself with the same scathing and meticulous uh, knife of awareness and of uh, truth truth and critique in the same way that I have like other aspects of life. So it's time to like turn it inward. Ooh. I mean, that's the, that's the dangerous. Con- I think if you do it in t- like on purpose and say like, okay, I'm going to cut into myself. That's one thing. It's comedy can be dark and that can be yeah. a place where people start from. Well, you know, it's funny because I'm, I feel like I'm naturally attracted to guys that are funny, but a lot of them, their funny comes from darkness and mine does not. And so it eventually ends up like we end up at an impasse because mine actually comes from light. So for all intents and purposes, like the cutting into myself is for the purpose of like breaking me open to like be able to be lighter and to like elevate into another space. Whereas I think for some others, it's more self-deprecation that is like a tool that is unfortunately like it's like a tool that they're using to like kind of yeah. keep themselves in a dark our place. Our damage can fuel our success, but that's yeah. a slippery slope when you're rewarded for like amplifying your you're damage. Exploiting yourself. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you so, so you say you're a truth teller. Yes. And the reason why your brand is called small doses is because people can only handle the truth in small doses for the most part yes so in your opinion what is the current prognosis for the truth how can we amplify the voices of truth tellers i mean i think the fact that a lot of folks don't under don't realize that we are like being trained to no longer like regard the truth with the same level of merit I mean, journalism is all but dead as an art based in ethics. Everything's for sale. Everything's for sale, you know? So even, like, truth is not as is no longer valuable in the same way that it once was. Like, I think it's become more of um, something that gets peddled as, like, ex- something to exploit or something to extort, you know? Vulnerability. Yeah. Sells. And it's, and it's not, 
And then on the other hand, you have just the the basic idea of like people just lie. Like they just lie and they can get money off of it because a lie is sometimes more interesting than the truth. And so people will click on the lie or you have, you know, we have an administration that literally made up a word for lying. Alternative facts is literally just another word for lying. Um, so we just, you know, I think the way that we amplify it is we protect truth tellers And we protect spaces where the truth should be upheld. And I personally believe that's media. Um, And we we need a revolution in media. You know, podcast spaces are are the last bastion, in my opinion, of like kind of just spaces where people are telling truths. And it's not completely driven by money in the same way. Like, I think that even though there's ads, et cetera, like majority of the people I know that do podcasts do podcasts because they just like doing a podcast. And I think we need to uplift the voices of those who really challenge. So you have a book that just came out. A week ago. Tell me about it. Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use. My podcast is by the same name, Small Doses. And so I wanted to do a book that would serve as like the literary component to the podcast because people who were listening to the podcast were saying like, we really want like the gems that you're dropping in literary form. We want to be able to resource. We want to be able to come back to it, et cetera, which I thought was going to be a very easy just like thing to do. And it really wasn't. And I had to really be very, very thoughtful about how I wanted the words on the page to differ from just talking on my podcast. And um, that was achieved by not just writing essays, but by mixing it up. So there's essays, there's stories, there's lists. I like lists. There's blurbs, there's there's poems, there's visual art that I did. Um, so I really wanted it to be just like the kind of book that you can pick up and put down and pick up and put down. And if you want to read it straight through, you can read it straight through. But if you just want to like take a – because the term small doses comes from the fact that like the truth hurts for a lot of people. So it's like just take it in doses. And so I see there's some advice here in, on networking, and that's something we do a lot here. Really? At Girlboss, well, we have a professional network. We launched a what's being called a LinkedIn for women. Ooh. It's really – yeah, it's beautiful. But – um, and it's what we do at our conferences. It's what we're doing here today yes. in some way, one one to one. Can you give us some tips on an effective way to network? Well, first of all, I think that a lot of it is just how you approach. You know, there's definitely like a way to approach that I think is more um, receptive and that is more inviting than simply just like, hey, I want something from you. And that is the key. And I think that a lot of people don't know. Like, there's certain language that's been, like, very normalized. And I think when you reach a certain point, you're just like, yeah, I don't want to hear that. I don't ever want someone to say to me, can I pick your brain? Mm -hmm. I hate it so much. I hate it so much. (laughs) Multi-hyphenate. I have an essay on being a (laughs) multi-hyphenate in my book. Um, I really – and some people are listening right now and they're like, what's the problem with that phrase? I think something about that phrase makes me feel like I just picture someone taking my skull off and like picking at my brain. Gross. And like I can't get that stuff back. I think the other thing too is that you have to be very conscious about what your product is and where it's at. And sometimes we, we, we're not as honest with ourselves about like how valuable our product will be to somebody else. And we just think like, I have a good idea. So this, these people are going to love my idea. And I've definitely had people that hit me and be like, um, I'd love to get in business with you. Oh, really? 
It's like that's nice, right? Like, who are you? Why you know? Or you I don't even know me. Maybe I'm a nightmare. Maybe I'm a nightmare. Maybe you don't want to be in business with me. And you know what? To be fair, it's like I don't. I know that we're in an internet age. I know that social media definitely creates more like um, opportunities for people to connect and have access. But like sending me a DM saying like we should like be in business together is not. An effective way to network with me. Let's connect. Mm-hmm. I'd love to oh. catch up sometime. Let's. Can I take you out for coffee? I know that. I feel like that's one of the pieces of advice like we've given, or people in Girl Boss Radio have given. And I feel like networking has now become much more sophisticated or evolved. And so, like the things that were okay mm-hmm. a few years ago, like can I get you a coffee, has become like okay, how can I help this person? Do I know anyone that knows that person? Like, what's relevant to them? Can I come, you know, you're bas- they're basically selling themselves yeah. to, to you for your time. I mean, I've definitely had to like, because I don't think you ever stop networking. I mean, I was networking today. Like I had to make some phone calls today that were like, hey, you know, I would love to speak to you about what I'm doing, et cetera. One tip I can give you, and this never gets old, play to the ego. Oh, yeah, right? Play to the ego. Oh, my God, I love you. I love, yes. I, I just, I think that what you're doing is incredible. And you're not lying, you know, but people want to feel like the person who they're going to give their time or advice to genuinely knows about what they're doing and actually supports what they're doing. And I think that's a good segue into, and I don't want to spend the whole podcast talking about networking, but when you give someone a compliment and say like, hey, you're really good at this, you're an expert here, and then that tees you up to say, hey, I have a question for you, I would Mm -hmm. love your advice, but that's only because you're an expert. You know, I've like flattered you and disarmed you, Uh and now I want something from you. Yes. (laughs) Um, And that person is literally nine times out of ten more likely to give it to you because now you have acknowledged that they're really good at it, and they almost feel compelled. Like, well, I mean, I have to tell her I'm an expert. Dear listener, I want to take a quick moment to check in with you. If you're enjoying my chat with Amanda Seals, and I hope you are well, I have some great news for you. You can chat with Amanda Seals too for some direct advice next week on girlboss.com. Amanda is hosting our next digital fireside on November 21st. Every week, if you don't know, we have our digital firesides series on girlboss.com on our professional network. If you don't know about it, join, create a profile. And these digital firesides are where we invite incredibly accomplished women from a variety of fields to go online and answer questions from our members on Girlboss. So if you've been listening along and want to ask Amanda some questions, you can do that on girlboss.com on November 21st. To join the conversation, just go to girlboss.com. Sign up if you haven't already. It's free. There's tens of thousands, so many other incredible women on this platform that you can connect with. You can join groups. You can do so many things. But what I'm talking about here is the digital fireside. On November 21st, you can go to girlboss.com, join the digital fireside with Amanda Seals. And if you're already signed up, we'll send you a nice little reminder that it's happening. Okay, now back to my conversation with Amanda. So for those of us who want to get into comedy in 2019, get our content out there, cut our teeth, what do you recommend for the listeners who are like, oh, I'm inspired. I want to be a comic now. Find an open mic and go. Here's the thing about an open mic. You're not going to have an audience. Your audience is going to be other people who want to be comics. 
they might be people who already think they're funny. Um, it might be comics who are already getting up but are just trying out material. It might be people who think that being racist or anti-Semitic or misogynist or transphobic, that that's funny. So they get on stage and say really wild, ridiculous, shocking shit. And it can be a real turnoff and make you be like, why am I These are my peers? Right. Chuck value is so passe. Just So passe. So, but comedy is one of these things. And I mean, I guess this is the case for everything, but like you can't skip steps. You can speed them up, but you can't skip steps. And doing open mics is the first step to you really getting a feel for like, am I interested in doing this? Because if you'll do it on a stage in front of nobody that you probably had to pay to get on, because sometimes you have to pay like five bucks to be a part of an open mic. like Or, listen, sometimes you come to an open mic and it's like a lottery. So they'll have open, they'll have open mics where it's literally like a room of 50 people and you put your name in the hat and they just pull names and whoever 25 that they pull gets to go up that night. And if you didn't get your name pulled, then you didn't get to go up. But you sat there and you watched everybody and hopefully you paid attention to who sucked, you know, who was good, who was great, why, etc. And, you know, you either come back to that open mic or you find a different one. And that's the other thing. You start figuring out which open mics make the most sense for you. You know, which open mics have, like, a supportive room, which open mic maybe is uh, most practical, right? Because sometimes it's like, yeah, I'm paying $5 for this, but I get up on stage and I'm actually, like, in front of people who are giving me feedback. Because there's the other thing, like, it's dope when you find an open mic where, like, the other comics give you valid feedback, you know? So... You got to do open mics. Um, What's the next step? How do you know I'm you're ready there. for the next step? You know you're ready to go to the next step when you know other comics. That's the other thing. You networking. have to meet. Ooh, that brings us back. Back yes. to networking. Networking is the number one part of comedy. And it's just literally hanging out. Being willing to hang out. And I don't like hanging out. So I had to really get over myself and I was feeling like the new girl in seventh grade, you know, because, of course, there's folks who, like, we've been hanging out. Like, we're chums, you know, and you got to, like, be like, hey, guys, uh, you know, can I, can I hang out? Am I too? invited to the next party or are you guys going without me? <laughs> right. Like, uh, I'm just going to follow, I'm just going to follow you guys. I'm going to tag, tag along behind you. And so, like, that's the type of stuff that I would have to, like, force. I remember being at an open mic at UCB and sitting there and being like, and no lie, spending 30 minutes trying to just jack myself up to ask somebody like hey so are you going to the next you know where are you headed next yeah and finally I did it and so then and they were like yeah you know we're going to and then I just felt like so lame like why did you even give yourself all that stress like they're all in the same boat as you and so you start creating alliances with other comics you know you start feeling out like you start ending up just like oh we're at the same places etc etc and you start finding out about places that let new comics get up, which is not always the case. Like I've done stand up in the back in like a secret back room of a restaurant in Williamsburg. And like, you don't know it's there until someone like knocks twice, you know, on the door and like, it just like opens. I did stand up on a train before 
on the train. So, you know, my point, though, is that once you start meeting other comics and you start finding out about places that let new comics up, and that's when the next step is, which is getting up and doing it in front of real people. Just doing it. Mm-hmm. What would you say your biggest career mistake has been and your biggest career victory? I would say my biggest career mistake has been thinking that it was fine for me to be my whole self in all spaces. I don't know who I think I am. I don't know who I thought everybody else was. But here at 38, I can safely say that I have had the epiphany that when I give other people the advice, like people, especially black women, will ask me like, you know, I just feel like I'm being misunderstood in my job. Like, you know, I'm, I feel like I'm, you know, just not getting to be myself. And I'll tell them, like, yeah, but it's your job. Like, they don't need all of you. Your friends get all of you. Your family gets all of you. Like, at your job, like, give them as much of you as you want to give them that you feel makes you feel comfortable. If it's still so uncomfortable, then that's not the job for you, right? I didn't realize that I'm in Hollywood, but, like, this is the office. It's an office. And that I need to apply that same, I need to apply that same advice to myself. Like, and it's not even about like, oh, like these people are vultures. It's more so just like, create boundaries for yourself and how you're moving in these spaces and be realistic about the fact that like, you just have to be more self-conscious. Also, the truth can hurt you. Like if, I feel like you can put things out in the world that are so misconstrued yes. that it actually just ends up hurting you. Like you can't. You give them the bullets to shoot you with. People read the headline and not the article. Someone wrote, like someone literally wrote a wild headline today about me. And in the article, it completely clarifies like that that's not what I said, but that's what the headline says. And so I'm just like, yeah, but you can't make a headline that's not what actually happened. You know, but controlling your narrative is just very, it's impossible. Once you reach, also once you reach a certain level of visibility, like you just are no longer controlling your narrative the way you thought you were. So you have to do, so you do have to create boundaries. So that's one of my biggest mistakes. Like, I would know that is the biggest mistake I've had. The biggest mistake I've made is thinking that I could control my narrative in spaces that weren't interested in protecting it. I, you know, I think I just, I'm an only child. I don't know. I showed up and I was Welcome. just like, We're I was like, children. look, it's me. Yeah. Don't, aren't you going to celebrate me for like being myself? We are the same. I'm just going to say what I think. And yeah. then people are like, mm, that doesn't work in the workplace. Um, like, you have to temper your words and. Economy of words. I was mean, just like, what? But I, but I like me. I, I know. But and they're like, yeah, but we don't. It's true. It's just like, it ends up being selfish. If you can justify something as being better for you, that's actually better for other people. I've like convinced myself like, oh, it's actually better for me to do this, not just mm-hmm. for other people around me and make it easier for them. It's like, oh shit, like I could save myself a lot of strife. And there's that. The last time I went through this was in my early 20s when I was working at Sirius Satellite Radio and I was just like this very recently educated angry black woman and I was just full of rage at all times. And I had to kind of realize like, yeah, but you're like putting yourself through so much excess stress by like bringing your rage to people that genuinely don't give two dams about any of this. They want your invoice. Shut up. Uh, I would say the biggest victory. I'm still here. I'm still here and I've managed to reinvent myself and I've managed to continue to evolve my craft and my work um, in spite of my mistakes. Well, welcome. 
thing. We're just going to keep welcoming you for the years <laughs> that come that people will be downloading this podcast and listening to it. Thanks, guys. Welcome eternally. So I have a couple questions I ask everybody that joins me on Girl Boss Radio. And one of these is around this concept of success, which is like, okay, made a bunch of money, success, right? Ooh, uh, married by 30, success, whatever. Pregnant the first time I tried success, whatever. It can mean so many things, and it should mean different things for, for us, and it can also change over time. What does success mean to you right now? Well, I'm in a transition phase where I'm really literally at this point in my life reassessing what success is to me. And at this point, success would mean being able to play in the big leads, but with my own team. Take no shit. There's a thing called girl boss moments. It's basically like the time in your most recent history that something you were just proud of. And it could have been you did something for someone else. Or I got a house plant. Or I slept all day on Saturday. Or I accomplished something. Mm -hmm. What was your most recent girl boss moment? When I threw together my book tour by myself. I won't say completely by myself, meaning that like I had people that once I pulled the trigger were like, okay, I'm going to make these phone calls and I'm going to send these emails. But... The people that should have put it together, I feel like we're just kind of not accustomed to working in such a short time frame. And so I had to just I had to just do it. And it's because like I'm shooting a TV show that I don't necessarily know my schedule ahead of time. So we don't have the same luxury of like lead time. So when I had time off, it was like I just found out I have time off and I just have to like figure this out or else the opportunity will go. And I did it. I figured it out, and it was a four-city book tour, L.A., D.C., New York, the Bay, and um, people came out. People sold out all of the book tour stops, and it was one of those things where I just had to remind myself, like, you really are, like, you you do it, Amanda. Like, it, against the odds, whatever, like, you do it and you're able to do it, not just because you want to, but because like you are loved and because the universe does want you to win and it is conspiring for to get you what you desire. So your book is called Small Doses, Potent Truths for Everyday Use. It's out now. Where can we find your book? Where can we find you? You can find my book anywhere. Barnes, Amazon, independent booksellers, uh, books a million, et cetera. You can find me at Instagram, Amanda Seals, and uh, the Twitters and the Facebooks by the same name. Cool. Amanda, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having yeah. me. I want to give a big thank you to Amanda for coming on Girl Boss Radio. I learned a lot. I hope you did too. I hope you laughed a little bit. And as always, if you like what you heard on today's show, please go ahead, leave us a rating, review, wherever you get your podcasts. Tell us how we can do better, but mostly tell us how much you love us. And when you leave a rating or review, it's a simple way that you can help us spread the word about the show because we want Girl Boss Radio to reach more listeners. And you can help us do that by rating, reviewing, and sharing it with your friends. Okay, that's it for now. See you guys next week.